In this episode of Startups the Rest of Us, Rob and I are going to be talking about how to build case studies that don't suck. This is Startups the Rest of Us, episode 440. Welcome to Startups the Rest of Us, the podcast helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Mike. And I'm Rob. And we're here to share your experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. What's going on this week, Rob? I'm back from London, sir. Microconf for a week, and then I flew home, and the next day flew out to London with my wife and the kids for nine days, 10 days. It was a long time. It was a long time to be away from home. You know, as much as I like being in new places, I find that I'm more productive at home and just being gone that long with the kids and just being gone for basically two and a half weeks, including microconf was, uh, starts to kind of take its toll on you. Plus the time change, plus all this stuff. So it was, London was fun. Sherry and I had been there before. The kids had not, so we took them around to all the the fun sites. We watched a five hour play called Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, or the Cursed Child. It was uh, had a two and a half hour intermission, so you could get dinner in between the two the two parts. That was really good, though. Very very well done. Wait, was the two and a half hours like inclusive of the play itself, or was it like no? Okay, so it was two and a half hours of play, and then a two and a half hour dinner, and then another two and a half hours of yep. play. Wow. Yep, it started at. One in the afternoon and ended at nine p.m. Wow! So it with a two and a half, three hour gap in the middle. So we went out to dinner. I know when Sherry and it's quite expensive as well. Like it was a big, it was a big expense being there. And she's like, "Do we want to do this?" And it's like, you know, this is one of those things. It's getting rave reviews, and it's like a Broadway quality play. I mean, it's really pretty, pretty cool. And and you know, J.K. Rowling was heavily involved with this. So she's not writing really writing books anymore, but she's now doing movies and and this play. And uh, I know when it started, it was, I think they came out as a book format or in book format. I didn't read it, um, but it was basically a play in, in book format. So there was no description. It was all just dialogue and people really didn't like it. But play itself got rave reviews and, you know, my kids loved it and they, I enjoyed it as well. I was surprised that we all made it through because five hours, it's like five and a half hours-ish of sitting in a play is a long time, but it was one of those things. Hopefully it'll be, I, I think it's kind of one of those lifelong experiences, you know, of like, a crazy thing to say, yeah, we saw it in that, you know, the first year or two and, and it was good. I imagine they'll make it into a movie at some point and we'll, we'll say we like the play better. Cause isn't that what you do? <laughs> you always like the book or the play better, the pretentiousness <laughs> of, I saw it first, darling. I know. I, I think that that's always, whichever one you saw first, it happens to be the one that you like. It's not, totally. yeah, it's nothing else. Yeah. Yeah. I saw you were going to London. And I was just like, oh God. Cause I, I got back and then I saw some things on Facebook. I think it was like, oh yeah, we're, you know, headed to London or, you know, something about the plane. And I'm just like, I cannot imagine getting on a plane after have, having gone to microconf for a full week and then taking the eight hour flight back and then have to get on another plane. <laughs> It was, it was exhausting. I don't travel well as it is. Like I just, I'm tired a lot. You know, I, Sherry travels really well. I don't, but so it took a toll on me, but all in all, I had a good time. It's good to be back. In addition, Sherry and I hosted a, a founder meetup. You know, I had mentioned that on the podcast here and then tweeted it and we got about, got about 30 people who showed up. I had to rent a space. So this was like a kind of a misstep. I figured I was imagining like, yeah, we'll get like 10 or 15 people together and we'll just show up at a restaurant or I'll call them in advance and get a back room. And then when, when we did that, I got like 57 people who entered their email and contact information. I was like, um, this is like an event now. I can't just show up somewhere. So 
it was a mistake because I, sh- I didn't want to plan anything. You know what I mean? I then had to get in touch with venues and do all this stuff. So actually, thanks to Stephanie from uh, who works for Effie International, she actually stepped in. I was talking to Thomas at uh, Microconf, and he recommended you know connecting me with someone there, and and she um, ended up researching venues and kind of handling a lot of that for me. But it was still a lot of back and forth, and even just trying to get the venue paid. You know, you're I'm in London and I'm trying to wire them money or bank transfer, and of course. I have, it has to like text me in order to add a new recipient and I don't have my SIM card because I'm in, I'm on a London SIM card. And so it's just all that friction and you don't want to be doing that when you're sitting there on a bus going to Stonehenge, you know? Really? You don't? (laughs) You don't, you don't. So, but overall, overall it was a super good experience. It was great to meet. I mean, the, the cool part is when we do that, it's like, there's so many folks who listen to the podcast or read your book or who follow us on Twitter or whatever, but they don't come to MicroConf. So you've never met them in person. And I mean, you know, the original goal, obviously, of MicroConf, as we said, was like to get everybody together back in 2011, just people we knew that we felt like should be talking to one another. But there's still, there's 10, 20, 30 times that many people that are out there that have never been to a MicroConf, but still are bootstrappers, right? And they still are are part of this community and they still follow the movement and all that stuff. And so that's where this meetup was cool, was that being able to show up. And if I'd planned it better, I'm sure, I mean, easily could, if I'd actually emailed the list and promoted it and and figured out the dates in advance, like could have had 50, 75 people there. I have no doubt about it. And that's what, I I think that's something that that could be an interesting thing moving forward. Although it takes time and effort and such to do, I do think that uh, I did enjoy kind of meeting folks that normally we wouldn't we wouldn't get to meet, you know, in the course of a year. Yeah. That's always cool to just kind of drop into some place. I mean, I, I certainly, uh, am, am not the one who would want to go out around and like, you know, call the venues and stuff like that. Cause that's a total pain in the neck, but uh, you're right. Like there's people all over the place that, you know, through various social media outlets or through email lists, or they bought your book, as you said, and you know of them or they know of you and it'd be nice to get together, but not everybody's got the flexibility to be able to do that. So when you do travel, it's, it's nice to be able to just get together with people. I agree. How about you? What's been going on the past week or two? Well, I've been uh, cleaning up after microconf, but uh, I've also been looking at 4K monitors. So bring my computer into the uh, the 21st century, I guess, because <laughs> my monitor is, I think it's like eight years old at this point, but I've got a 30-inch monitor, so I haven't needed to upgrade it because it's been fine, but I've also got like a pair of 20-inch monitors on the side, so, yeah. but I've kind of been eyeing 4K monitors for a while now, and it's just, I was talking to Andrew Culver, who apparently, if people are not familiar with this or follow him on Twitter, he runs Bullet Train, and he's got a pair of 55-inch like LED TVs that he uses. They're both 4K and he's got one in front of him and one he uses actually as the top of his desk. And he just sits there and works between the two of them, which is kind of crazy. Like that's massive amounts of uh, screen real estate, but it, it works for him. I've seen pictures of it, but I don't think I want to go to that level. Oh yeah, that sounds crazy. I'm still using, what do I have, two 24-inch Dell IPSs and stuff. So it's probably time for me to revisit that because it definitely has been... I'm thinking it's probably been four, maybe about four years, I think, since I kind of upgraded my monitors. But it's just one of those things that like, I don't actually have a ton of desk space here. And so I don't know that I could do (laughs) something that's that large or that it would benefit me. But it's always nice to rethink that every once in a while. Yeah, most of the ones that I've been looking at, they tend to be 27-inch monitors that are 4K, and the one I have right now is a 30-inch monitor, and it's uh, like 2560 by 1600 screen resolution. So I'd basically get 50% more screen real estate by going to a 4K, and it would be in a smaller 
area is I just question whether or not my eyes are good enough to you know keep on it. Yeah, that makes sense. Hey, so I've uh, you know I've had some time to reflect on MicroConf this year, and we recorded our, our recap episode when we were there still, and you're in the midst of it and everything. But you know, after talking to more folks and you know reading through feedback and even just thinking about it over the past week, I realized that this was a, a less tactical MicroConf than in previous years. I guess I'm speaking specifically about growth. I think Starter was still quite tactical, but it, it definitely gets hard to find qualified speakers who can speak at the level of growth who everyone hasn't heard from a dozen times, who, you know, it, it includes a diverse lineup of speakers and it's it's about tactical things. And so that's the challenge and it's a needle we, we try to thread every year. But yeah, I looked through the list and we had five of the nine growth talks that should have been fairly tactical. It was Hannah from Thrive Themes talking about how to handle feature requests. It was Marin talking about hiring. And then Joanna Weeb talking about copywriting. Taylor Hendrickson talking about SEO. And then Allie Bloom talking about uh, reducing churn through customer feedback. And typically we have more marketing talks. I think this year I struggled. I asked a few other people who who would have done talks more in line with prior years, but they weren't available or there you know, was other things going on. And then unfortunately, Marin had to, had to cancel last minute due to a, a personal thing that came up. So really we only had four of our nine talks were tactical. And that doesn't line up with prior years. We've tended to do 70, 80% tactical with just a couple inspirational. So I think uh, that's something that, you know, what, what's interesting is we've done 18 of these now, right? And some years, that's just what happens. It, it happens because, like, there'll be last-minute pivots in a talk where the, the speaker's like, hey, I just decided to do this other thing. And it's like, cool, let's do that. And it changes the lineup. Or one year, we can't get a bunch of people. Or one year, we'll get good speakers who have delivered great talks in the past, and they just, they have a bad year. They have a bad talk that doesn't come across. And so what I've learned, I think I've learned, you know, with the first three, four, five microconfs we did, I was always ranking them in my head. Oh, this next one has to be the best one ever. And at a certain point, you just can't always be doing the best one ever. You just have to do the best that we can and hope it turns out. But there's a bunch of stuff that's not within our control, frankly, whether it's a speaker canceling or just someone showing up and not doing the best talk they've ever done, or whether it's someone who, who you vetted and then they pivot the, you know, the talk at the last minute. So I think that I, in my head, like I'm pretty careful not to draw trend lines based on one event and say, all right, well, that's it. Now microconf is different than it always has been. And it's not tactical anymore. And it's like, no, that's not actually true because you know, the, the next time we're going to double down on, on the same vision. I and mean, we've had pretty good consistency through the 18 events. But it's just an observation I made, and I, you know, again, I, I heard a couple people mention it to me, and I was kind of like, yeah, no, that's that's a good point, and I think that it'll be, you know, it'll be different next time. Like, no two microcomps are the same. Yeah, I mean, you have I have had this conversation before, and I think that we had a, the conversation, especially early on after the first, I think, two to three years where like things were getting progressively better, and we're like, okay, well, how do we top the previous year? How do we make it better? How do we improve? And at a certain point, like I think that that's actually detrimental, especially when it comes to a conference where there's so many things that are outside of your control. And what you really need to do is be concentrating on how can I maintain a consistently high level of quality doing this same thing because you're never going to consistently beat what you did before. You know, you're not always going to grow your numbers. You're not always going to have better and better speakers. Like some, as you said, some people are going to have an off year here or there, or a talk you think is going to go over well, just falls flat or something like that. Those things happen. And just aiming for like consistently high quality, I think is the a better way to approach it because you'll maintain your sanity a lot better as well. 
Totally. And I mean, I think other examples that I realized, again, I was reflecting, I was going through all the talks and thinking, how are they different than I thought they would be? How is this microgram different? Like there were, I think there were more talks that had perhaps a, you know, a, a hint of negativity in them. And it wasn't that the whole talk was negative, but during my talk, I said, look, bootstrapping is getting harder. Like there's more money coming into SaaS. It is harder. And some people are like, oh my gosh, that's just, it's just doom and gloom everywhere. And it's like, no, that's not. It's just, a trend that I am seeing, you know, and it's Patrick Campbell mentioned something that part of his talk was, you know, remote companies don't grow as fast and have higher churn than co-located companies. And we can talk about that probably, you know, in, in a future episode, but there were just little tensions of it. And even a Gumroad, you know, saw Hill's talk. I had never met him, but his talk was more of a downer than I thought it would be. And you just don't know that going in, right? His story of starting Gumroad and raising the money and and failing to become a billion dollar company is it, it can come off inspirational. There could be tactics, or it could be could have kind of uh, depressing. Depressing is a strong word, but you know undertones of just thoughtful introspection, or even you know talking about bootstrapping versus not. Like this happened to be a year where there were you know with, with Chris Savage and Sawhill talking about things that weren't necessarily super related to, you know, or, or in the in the wheelhouse of, of bootstrapping and even Patty Olevin having to step in, right? So Marin, you know, wasn't able to do it. Patty Olevin stepped in and talked about what Silicon Valley does and, and this and that. So again, one could paint it with a brush and look at it and be like, oh, well, MicroConf now is all about depressing talks that are less tactical and not focused on bootstrapping, right? You could say that. And that's not, it's not true. And um, no one is saying that. I am definitely just reflecting on this and, and looking at it, painting it in my head. But I think it's like one experience, one year does not make a trend and it doesn't, it's just the way things kind of, kind of fall in a given year. And again, it's because of a lot of things that can be outside of your control that change last minute or just the way things fall certain years. Yeah. And your your comment about Patrick Campbell's data points about the companies that are remote growing slower than ones that aren't, that may be a general trend or a, a general conclusion that you could draw, but it doesn't mean that that happens every single time because there's obviously going to be individual situations that fall on one side or the other. And some of them are going to skew the data and some of them are going to stick pretty close to it. And it's just, it's more about what your path is as opposed to, oh, this trend line over here says this, or this data point I have says X. Well, a data point in and of itself doesn't mean a whole lot. It's There's a bigger picture that you're not always looking at. Yeah, totally. So, it's been good. It's, you know, I think when you're building anything, you're building software, you're building a personal brand, you're building art, you know, you're building a conference, you should reflect on it, figure out what went well, what went not so well, and figure out how to build an event or, or a thing that you're proud of and that brings value to people. And that's how we've done that. We've done that over and over for the, you know, the past 18 conferences. And so I think it's a good exercise. It was like a mini retreat. I, I had a lot of t time on airplanes over the past two weeks. So, <laughs> you know, was able to think about this kind of stuff. So with that, what are we talking about today? Well, today we're going to be talking about how to build case studies that don't suck. <laughs> and uh, I have a, a bunch of sources that I've kind of drawn from, and we'll put those into the show notes. But I kind of want to talk about the process of putting together a case study and, and why you would even do it. So to start out with, like, what what's the purpose of a case study? And you can use case studies in a lot of different ways, but you can use them to drive traffic to your website. You can use them to help convert leads, increase sales. And the, the biggest thing that I've looked at for case studies 
studies is that when you have a case study that is fully written out, it's it's treated by people as different than if you're having a conversation with them and you start relaying facts to them because there's this, I don't want to say a, a wall of I don't believe you in front of them, but if you have something in a case study and it's spelled out in black and white, they can look at it and they can download it and see the data and kind of pick it apart in their head as opposed to trying to process it on the fly when you're having a conversation. So it feels a little bit more tangible to them. And you can use it as a reference point, not just to hand to them, but also you can you can relate back to those data points in conversations that you have during sales calls or demos or just, you know, everyday conversation where you point back to it and then say, oh, well, I'll, we have a case study on exactly this. I will send it to you. Yeah. And the cool part about case studies is they can function at the top of the funnel, like you said, to drive traffic. They can function in the middle of the funnel to convert leads and they can function more towards the bottom of the funnel to well, really to convert leads and increase sales. I mean, they're, they're a very versatile piece of content depending on how they're written. And you can even do different variations of the exact same case study to make it more general and have a, a broader headline that could go towards the top of the funnel or be super specific and, and just use the same content and tweak it to make it super applicable to someone who's, who's deep in your sales funnel. So I've always liked them because of well, because they, they make your customer the hero, right? Which in essence tries to make your prospect the hero of the story, right? The prospect who's thinking about it can look at it and say, wow, I want that to be me. In addition, the versatility to be able to be at all stages of the funnel is, is a unique uh, aspect of case studies. And I think one of the things you just mentioned is that you're positioning those, your prospects as the hero. And that's one of the reasons why these things are so effective. You know, it allows you to directly position your product as the best solution for that particular case study. And you've got claims that are backed up by results because you're documenting them as part of the case study. So all of those things combined make it helpful to have those because you can put them in front of somebody. And it's not something that everybody else has. Like not every company puts together case studies that they can hand out to their prospects or to their soon-to-be customers, and that makes them extremely effective in helping to convert those people into paying customers. Yeah, and I think one of the critical things to think about when you're building a case study is to identify who it's targeting, right, to be very specific. Oftentimes, you'll see a case study done for each of several market verticals. And so if your app serves other SaaS apps and WordPress plugins and info marketers, then you could do one case study for each of those three verticals. And that could be a, a start. If you serve different company sizes, you know, whether they're horizontal or within verticals, you can do a Fortune 500 case study and then a solopreneur case study and then, a, you know, an SMB case study. Job titles, job responsibilities is another one that you can you can look at and you can highlight this. You know, they have a bunch of quotes from the CEO of a small company or the CFO or even the marketing director or whatever. I think that doubling down, you know, figuring out kind of the 80-20 of this and starting with one and focusing it on the place you have the most traction with. So like, what's the job title or responsibility? You know, is it founders? Is it CEOs, CFOs, whatever? The company size, whether SMB, enterprise, et cetera, and, and a market vertical. And then doing your first one based on that and kind of seeing how it goes, I think is, is how I would start. 
I think the other thing that you mentioned earlier, which was the fact that a case study can apply at the top, middle, or the bottom of the funnel, like that's another important thing to keep in mind when you are trying to identify who it is that you're targeting because you want to know which of those types of people that you are targeting in your sales funnel. Like is it is it somebody who you want to be able to run Facebook ads and promote this case study to, or is it somebody who's much closer to being a, a paying customer and they just need that last little bit of a push and you can hand them a case study that, that maps them into the shoes of a current customer that you have who's being successful with your product. So once you have that information, you have to find customers who fit that profile and interview them. And the very first thing you're going to want to do is get their permission to use their name, photo, company, logo, things like that as part of a case study. And Obviously, they're going to want to be interested in being the, the subject of that case study. So you want to look specifically for customers who are being successful with your product. You don't necessarily have to have had them for a long time, but they have to be excited about your product and using it a lot. A lot of times this can happen and when they just sign on. If you've had a sales conversation with somebody and you maybe manually onboarded them because it was sort of complicated, they were moving from another product to yours, and you had to do some upgrades or a new feature improvements or something like that in order to get them over onto using your product. Those people are typically really good candidates because they were experiencing pain enough from an existing solution that they were using that it also allows you to position your product against that other product as saying, hey, this was a better fit for this type of person and here are all the reasons why. From there, you know, you can you can use a, an introductory questionnaire in essence that you know, whether it's a Google form or whether it's just an email with four or five bullets on it, get someone to give you their initial, kind of the initial thoughts, the initial feedback, and you use that to then construct a deeper set of questions that you would typically ask during like a phone interview that you then record. And you can either then listen back, turn that into the case study, or you can transcribe it and try to manipulate that. But basically what we're talking about here is like a, a dual level of, of interviews. The first one is this this short introductory questionnaire that's typically done via email. And then what that allows you to do is make the best use of this person's time when you jump on the phone interview for 30, 45 minutes. And that introductory questionnaire is something that you could inject as part of your marketing automation. So when they have paid for the third or fourth time, they made three credit card payments, you can then send them a question that says, hey, would you be interested in doing a case study? And then maybe highlight some of the other ones that you've done. Or if you're early on, you don't have a pool of case studies that you've done, you can use, you can send them over as like an individual email. And what you're trying to dig into with all of this is you're trying to find the through line for their story and then tell that story from start to finish. I mean, to be honest, I would look at The Hero's Journey by Joseph Campbell, and you can just read a summary of that. You don't need to read the whole book, but just figure out what that is. You'll see a lot of interviews. Um, I actually base a lot of my talk outlines on The Hero's Journey as much as I can. But it's basically you know, showing this person where they ended up and then tracing back and, and walking through the steps that they got to get there. So you want to identify who they are, what they do, what their goals were, what their needs were, what challenges they ran into along the way. You know, how did your product meet these goals and help them get to that next level, help them become, you know, go from Mario to, to Super Mario in essence. And what were the benefits that they received, you know, from your team or from your product or, or whatever to be able to level up. And the most important thing that you want to keep in mind when you're going through that story and identifying what that through line is, is to focus almost exclusively on the story because it has to resonate with whoever your target prospect is. The brand recognition for the hero of the story matters a lot less than the story itself. So if you have a 
person or a company that you're highlighting and nobody knows who they are, it doesn't matter. What really matters is making sure that the story is going to be relatable to the person who's reading it. Because if it isn't, then the case study itself is not going to be nearly as powerful or as effective. I've seen case studies where like they're written for a completely different type of company, like an enterprise company. And I, I read the case study and it means absolutely nothing to me because my problems are wildly different than that of an enterprise company. But if you have a, a different case study that is targeted at one or two person companies, then that's something that, that resonates a lot better with me. And it doesn't matter to me if I know who the subject of that particular case study is or not. Yeah. Story, story, story is the, I mean, that's, those are the first three rules of anything, right? First three rules of starting a podcast, of writing a book, even if it's a, you know, a nonfiction book about marketing, like having a story in there, we'll, we'll pull people in, writing a talk, writing, you know, there's, there's so many things, a blog post, like that story can do and case studies are no different. Then something to think about. So once you've nailed this down, thinking about your formats, there's a lot of formats you can put a case study into. You could obviously do a video one, which is, I hesitate when I say that because A, it's, it's expensive to do high quality. I think fewer people watch videos than will listen to audio or read, you know, a written version. But if you can do a high end one, it can feel, you know, if you can pay a videographer to actually put it together, if you can afford that, they can be pretty cool and they can have a lot of, of cachet. So there's video, there's, you know, PDF, there's audio, there's infographics. And the, the idea is if you can provide it in multiple formats, it's kind of cool because then you can take that same content and the content often takes the bulk of the time to produce, but then you can, you know, rework it and reposition it and, and send it out in these, in these many ways so it, that it feels like you have a bunch of different case studies, but it's actually just one thing reworked into, uh, into multiple formats. And part of the reason you'd want to do that is just because people like to consume content in different ways. Some people like video, some people like audio, some people like to read a, a PDF. Other people will glance at an infographic and they'll sign up for a mailing list in, in order to find out more information. But all of those things can be used in different capacities and in different channels. So you want to have the you want to make the most use of that content that you're generating as you possibly can. And the, the way to do it is using multiple formats. One thing that we kind of skipped over, we didn't talk about it earlier, was the fact that when you're writing these case stories, try and drill in to find real numbers that you can reference. So if you say grew by you know 100% or 200%, that's a lot less meaningful than saying grew by 97%. I mean, that's a kind of a classic marketing technique, but the, the fact is that the, having real numbers that prospects can reference and can relate to is a huge difference. If somebody's getting, let's say, 10,000 visitors a month to their website, and you have a case study where somebody's talking about growing from 9,000 to 17,000 visitors a month, that's going to be powerful to them. Whereas if that same person reads a case study and it references 180,000 visitors going to 360, it's not as meaningful to them because they can't relate to it. It doesn't mean as much. And that's why having those numbers in there helps you to position your case study directly towards the type of person that you're targeting. And then the last thing is to make sure that you have a place where people can go to get these case studies. So it's, it's not enough to just promote them through various channels or to send them to people when they're asking for them or to put them into your marketing automation. What you really want to do is make sure that these case studies are available so that if somebody's just browsing your website and they want to see some of the different case studies, 
they're right there. I mean, that, that serves a lot of different purposes, but I mean, the bottom line is that you want people to be able to seek, seek these out if they're interested in them and then download them whenever they feel like it. And then, of course, the thing that most people forget about, and that is should probably be at least half of the work, is the promotion. Maybe it should be 80-20, but it's promotion, right? You're going to re- build this thing. It's not going to promote itself. It's not? It's not going to oh. promote. Mike, if you have learned nothing <laughs> in 440 episodes of this, build it and they will come is not, not going to work. So this is where you have to inject this case study into your sales or your marketing funnel. And, and it can be published on the website at a place where it gets a lot of traffic. You can put it in an email welcome sequence. You can put it in a, you know, a, an email marketing sequence, but just some way to get this in front of people's eyeballs. Promote it on social media periodically uh, if it holds up, if it's evergreen. If it's a one-time thing, obviously, you promote it on social media for a week or two and then you let it go. But getting it out to folks via email really is probably the, the, the best way. I mean, we know that email engagement is, is so much higher than other things, but the, the idea here is to get out in front of people. And even, I mean, I've heard folks doing the, the case study, uh, you know, running ads to get people to go download or read a case study is is certainly a viable option. It's a whole, that's all marketing tech that you're, that you're going to have to spend quite a bit of time honing the funnel and all that stuff. But there are lots of ways to get people in front of it. And if the case study is well-written and, you know, it impacts people, it can lead to, you know, to people, people converting, right? It can have positive ROI. Uh, pretty quickly. And you could even go so far as to put these as like a content upgrade on your website in various places throughout, you know, like your your content marketing. So if there's an article that you have about some particular topic and you have a case study that is discussing that topic or a challenge that people were having and explicitly walks through how one of your customers was able to overcome it with your product, then that's a fantastic content upgrade that you could promote uh, inside of that particular blog post. So we have, it looks like, four source articles that you compiled this outline from, as well as some of your own magic. Uh, and we will include those links in our show notes, startupsforetherestofus.com. Look for episode 440 if you want to learn more about this topic. And with that, we're wrapped up for the day. If you have a question for us, call our voicemail number at 888-801-9690 or email us at questions at startupsfortherestofus.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot, used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Overcast, Downcast, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are sold. Just search for Startups for the Rest of Us. And if you want a full transcript of each episode, you can hit our website, startupsfortherestofus.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.